Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. I'm very excited to introduce the first podcast of 2011. In it, we're going to be discussing the paper, Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Fetus, which is written by Ruben Jockey and Elspeth Whitby. Dr. Elspeth Whitby will be discussing it with Professor Omar Khwaja. Dr. Whitby is a senior lecturer at the University of Sheffield in the UK, and Professor Khwaja is Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Fetal Neurology Program at the Children's Hospital in Boston. Uh, first of all, please, Elspeth, can we start with you to summarize the background? Yes, hello, it's Elspeth Whitby. Fetal MRI has been used for over 25 years, but not in clinical practice, and it's gradually found its way in the last five to six years into clinical practice particularly for abnormalities of the fetal CNS. There have been various studies that have shown that fetal MRI is useful as an adjunct to ultrasound, but we're still trying to work out which particular cases it's for, and in this discussion we will cover safety, particular indications where fetal MRI is useful or indications where it doesn't really help, and we will concentrate on fetal CNS abnormalities. Thank you. Can I turn to you, please, Omar, and ask if you'd like to start? Thanks. This is Omar Khwaja. Elsa, it's a, a really wonderful review. I wonder if you would mind addressing, first of all, one of the preeminent concerns, I think, to clinicians when they're considering a fetal MRI, which is the safety of MRI and the optimum timing for MRI during pregnancy. Safety of MRI has been questioned since MRI came into clinical practice, and it's probably one of the most tested imaging methods we use with respect to safety. There have been several studies in the States, and we've done an in-house study in Sheffield looking at the hearing effects onto the fetus, because the noise of the MRI machine is up to 98 decibels, and although we can protect mum's hearing with earmuffs, the fetus is still open to that. We know the amniotic fluid reduces it by about 30 decibels, and when we have assessed the babies after they've been born, compared with a controlled cohort of the same sex and weight and born at a similar time of year, there have been no hearing defects. Nobody does fetal MRI in the first trimester. There is no proof that it's not safe, but it's just thought to be not useful and nobody will do it. We also be careful when we use it in the second trimester and we'll use it from 18 weeks onwards. And we're also very careful that we don't use intravenous contrast, as we know that gadolinium dechelates across the placenta and then will recirculate in the amniotic fluid. There have been studies showing that this actually hasn't had an effect on the fetus, but the study numbers are so small that I personally wouldn't risk it, and I don't know of anybody who's using gadolinium contrast when they're imaging the fetus. Do you agree with that, Omar? Elspeth, is there any um, prospect of using high-strength magnetic fields in the fetal MRI or do you think that that would give better definition that did enter clinical practice? I'm not sure what you can use over in the States. We're only allowed to use anything less than 2 Tesla, which basically means a 1.5 Tesla strength scanner. In Europe, they're allowed to use the 3 Tesla scanners. They do get much better definition of their images, particularly of bones and some of the soft tissues that we struggle with. They also see things that we're not sure what they are, so it's another learning curve if we can go to a higher strength of what's normal and what's not. But higher strength is used in Europe and is successfully used with lovely quality images that I'm sometimes asked to review and quite jealous of. So it would be interesting to just compare the pattern of referral and how most of your patients end up getting an MRI scanner. Are they coming through pediatricians or neurologists, or are they coming primarily from obstetricians or maternal fetal medicine practices? Initially, it was maternal fetal medicine, and from anybody coming through an obstetrician, I'd prefer them to come through a tertiary referral center 
so I don't like taking them from an obstetrician and district general, partly because although I'm quite happy to do the MRI and send the report, they haven't got the backup facilities needed with genetic counselling and specialist pathologists and specialist support midwives. So taking them through a tertiary referral centre is the optimum way to do it. It also means that those patients will have had at least two ultrasounds to assess the anomaly the baby's got. So we're not just doing it on one person's opinion, which is a safeguard to not allow everybody to send for MR as a default if they've got poor images for, say, maternal size or whatever reason. It makes them keep up their own skills. I am taking referrals at the suggestion of the paediatric surgeons, but these have always been sent their patients from a fetal medicine service. So if they haven't come directly to me from fetal medicine, a paediatric surgeon will often ask for them. And our paediatric neurosurgeons are now setting up guidelines in the UK which involve a fetal MRI before they see the neurosurgeon. So all the information is there to contact them. It is a tip of the iceberg situation. We don't want everybody coming for fetal MR because there isn't the people trained up with the skills to interpret it. But also we don't want to take people from ultrasound and de-skill our fetal medicine specialists. Discussions of fetal MRI is somewhat of a controversial area, but what do you feel fetal MRI contributes over and above, for example, a level 2, level 3 ultrasound from an experienced sonographer or, or maternal fetal medicine specialist? In our own practice, what we're seeing is midline and corpus callosum abnormalities are really difficult no matter how specialist you are and how well-trained you are at ultrasound, and they're very easy on MRI. The other thing we are adding in routinely is cortical development. We can see sulcal and gyral develop much more clearly than can on ultrasound, but we can also see a banding pattern of neuronal migration, so we can pick up migrational abnormalities earlier. And the more work we're doing, the earlier we're able to do that. And I think this is something that will develop with time. It's very important if that family have had a family history of a migrational abnormality, as we can tell them earlier. But it's also important if they've got closal abnormality and that we can add a prognostic value. The other area we're finding exceedingly useful is the posterior fossa, where they seem to struggle on ultrasound but also in patients of increased body habitus where the ultrasound quality is poor or where the baby is in a breech position and you can't use transvaginal ultrasound to get the ultimate images you need of the fetal brain. So there are certain areas where it's very good. It's also very good at sorting out areas of increased echogenicity in the brain, of whether it's hemorrhage or destruction or whether we've got areas of calcification. MR seems to be able to do that with much more clarity than the ultrasound itself. Fetal CNS malformations are the most common fetal malformation in pregnancy. Do you feel that fetal MRI will eventually move into standard practice in terms of evaluation of fetal CNS anomalies, or do you envisage it's going to be fairly restricted to certain types of conditions? I think it's going to become standard practice. That really depends on the availability of radiologists to interpret it and the availability of the fetal MR to the centre, but certainly centres where fetal MR is freely available, they are getting far more detail of the CNS abnormality. Even if the mum or the parents don't want to consider termination, what we're finding we can do is counsel these patients much more accurately, get them to see the neurosurgeons, get them to see the paediatric neurologist, and have a complete plan of what's going to happen to the baby after delivery. So it's not all being talked after when the mum's just delivered and the shock of what they've got and how severe the abnormality is, that we can predefine what's happening for this family. 
the additional benefit for a lot of the parents is that they can understand the MRI images and they struggle with any ultrasound images. So they themselves have got an idea of what is wrong with their baby, what it will look like when it's born, and what the clinicians need to do to help them. And it's very difficult to put a cost onto that and how valuable that is, but certainly the parents love to be able to see what is wrong with their child. How much do you think that fetal MRI changes counselling beyond regular ultrasound? I mean, do you have a sense quantitatively of whether doing a fetal MRI changes counselling or management of the fetus or diagnosis of the actual fetal malformation? And if it does so, how frequently would you think that the fetal MRI will change the originating diagnosis? So I'm thinking, say, particularly of ventricular medley. In ventricular medley, I think a lot of the studies that have come out, including our local study, but studies from the group that do a lot in France and the group in the States, all show that about 6% of babies with ventricular megaly have an abnormality that we pick up on MR that's not seen on ultrasound. It doesn't appear to be an abnormality that you will see later on in the pregnancy on ultrasound, so it's not that MR is seeing it earlier, MR is seeing additional information. The interesting thing that we found out in Sheffield on ventricular megaly is if we do a scan at 24 weeks, and then do a follow-up at 32, we're not actually picking any additional information up at 32 weeks. So the one scan at 24 weeks will pick up any additional abnormalities, currently 6%, and that seems to be a worldwide percentage, and additional scans are not going to help. It's whether you justify 6% as cost-effective to send all these patients for MRI if they've got ventricular megaly from borderline right the way through to severe ventricular megaly. Also interestingly on that score is it's the borderline and the mild ventricular megalies where if we do pick something up, it affects the counselling. The moderate and severe ventricular megalies, the counselling and the management of the patient is not affected because you're already into a poorer prognostic group. Speaking of timing of MRI, I mean, one of the difficulties that we face in the U.S. are limits on timing for termination of pregnancy, so that in the vast majority of states in the U.S., uh, termination of pregnancy is really limited to 24 weeks, regardless of whether there is a severe anomaly or not. And it's always struck me that, you know, between 22 and 26 weeks is a really peak period for cortical development and migration. And I was wondering whether you have any thoughts on what the optimum timing of MRI would be and really how much information we can get prior to 24 weeks in helping families prognosticate for long-term outcomes, particularly severe uh, disabilities or brain abnormalities that are going to compromise quality of life to the point where it would be reasonable for a family to consider termination. I offer scans from the 20-week anomaly scan onwards, and if the anomaly scan has been earlier than 20 weeks and there's an issue, I will scan the patient as early as I can, because although we're not as restricted in the UK as you are in the USA, we can terminate up to 24 weeks for even social reasons. It does have a difference where we manage them. Up to 22 weeks, we can just induce the pregnancy. At 22 weeks onwards, we have to perform a feticide in which we have to make sure the baby is dead before we induce the pregnancy. And from 24 weeks onwards, the parents have to register the child with birth, marriages and death, so they have to go and queue with the normal registration people. I'm convinced that the earlier we can do it, the better it is for the patient. So a lot of my experience is between 20 and 24 weeks. I will always offer a patient a follow-up scan if they're going to continue the pregnancy. The European counterparts are also stuck, like you are, that 24 weeks is their cut-off for terminations. 
and we are able to pick up the severelys and cephalids. We are able to pick up the cortical heterotopias at 20 weeks because the brain malformation is so significant. And we're looking at the sylvian fissure and the degree of opercalization, but also at the neuronal migration pattern. We're working together as a group across the various countries to try and work out how early we can pick up less significant abnormalities. And we're now trying to work out patterns of shape of the temporal lobes, shape of the temporal horns of the ventricles to see if that predicts cortical abnormalities. So the subtle ones we won't be able to pick up, but we are getting better the more experience we get. And I think a lot of patients are willing to come certainly in the UK, for two scans to let us get that experience so they can be confident with their termination. But also it will help you in other countries if we can get that information here. It's ongoing work, it's ongoing research, and it relies a lot on parents helping us out, but we have got a group that will do that. I think we're getting there. Certainly the big heterotopias, the lysencephalies, the microgyria, we are picking up if it's a significant abnormality before 24 weeks. One of the things I wanted to talk about were the so-called fetal anomalies, which may not necessarily be fetal anomalies. And so the things I'm thinking about, in particular, the mild ventricular megaly, uh, the apparently isolated inferior vermin hyperplasia, and some of the colloidal abnormalities. How does MRI help clinicians, in, in, from your perspective, in counseling these families where these anomalies may not really be true anomalies, but anatomic variants that don't necessarily lead to a impaired neurological or developmental outcome for the baby. I certainly speak on behalf of our local fetal maternal medicine specialists where if they've got a patient with mild ventricular megaly, they have to tell the patient that and they give them a good prognostic outcome. But often they have a caveat that it depends on whether there are any associated abnormalities. If they can do all their torch screens and their amniocentesis for genetic testing and then we do an MRI, the more of those tests that come back as normal, the better end of the prognosis it is. And I think it adds the value of reassurance to these parents that otherwise then have a very traumatic second half of pregnancy. The isolated inferior vermin hyperplasia is a different story in that the vermis grows much later than the rest of the brain and there seems to be a, a period of catch-up. So we often get a small vermis but normally shaped or we get a vermis that on ultrasound looks like it's got inferior vermin hyperplasia, but it's rotated round. In those cases, we can reassure the parents that it's the right shape, and we'd like to follow them up and make sure it catches up and it continues to grow. If there's a true vermin hypoplasia, we're left not really helping the clinicians in that it's what they would have seen on ultrasound and they have to continue their counselling if it's a small vermian hyperplasia, that that little bit's abnormal and that may or may not have effects on the child. But some of the parents we can provide the reassurance for. In my experience, a lot of women come for fetal MRI with an expectation that they're going to get a much more detailed sense of what the fetal anomaly is, and then they're in situations like inferior vermian hyperplasia where we really aren't able to perform a lot better than the ultrasound. What would you say are the other limitations of fetal MRI, at least at the moment? I think a lot of parents do come like that, and a lot of parents assume that we can work out that the baby's brain is normal and it will function normally. A lot of them come and they think that this is much better than ultrasound, that they've come for the test that will sort it out for them. And I speak to all mine before they have the MRI and make sure they know that this is an adjunct to ultrasound and that together we get as much information, but ultrasound is important and so is the MRI. There are a group of parents where we 
don't help. Our biggest problem is finding out which parents, so which of the mild ventricular megalies we're not going to help, which of the inferior vermin hyperplasias we can't help, which of the posterior fossa abnormalities that we may not add anything to ultrasound. I think a lot of the parents are still happier when two tests have shown that there's an abnormality rather than just the ultrasound. So although they go away with no additional information, they go away with confirmation that baby does have a problem. And so for some reason, parents feel that that is much better than going back and seeing the same person for another ultrasound who says, yes, it's there, it's still the same issues, it's still the same prognosis. To see it with a different technique sort of fixes it more in the patient's brain that this is the problem, that they understand it more and they take it on board, and it removes that hope of, well, the MR will tell me it's abnormal, it's normal, and that we can get on and the obstetrician was wrong or the sonographer was wrong. I think removing that hope from the parents, although it's hard, it does make them more realistic and more focused to deal with the problem of the baby, even if we haven't added to it. Obviously, you've got your cost of your fetal MR on top of your ultrasound, and you can't do that for everybody. Now, I mean, traditionally, fetal MRI, I suppose, has been used in assessment of static developmental brain malformations, but I wonder if you could just comment on the utility of MRI in encephaloclastic disorders, for example, in hemorrhage or in twin-twin transfusion or areas of presumed potential injury, for example, after trauma. Do you feel that MRI has a role in assessment of the fetus that has undergone some type of destructive event during pregnancy? MR is very good at picking up hemorrhage, and MR will pick up tiny little hemorrhages that ultrasound sometimes struggles with. We use it routinely in our twin-twin transfusion patients where we've lost one of the twins or where there's been laser ablation and both, even if both twins have survived to ensure that the brain has continued to develop normally. So all those patients come for a scan two weeks after the event. We get quite a few patients referred when they've turned up to clinic for decreased fetal movements or they've been in a road traffic accident or fallen down the stairs or the midwife's not sure that the baby's moving sufficiently enough. And we do pick up a significant number of hemorrhages. Interestingly, these are always in the later gestational ages. We don't pick up as many early on, and I think it's because we're not referred them at that stage. So we are picking up effectively damage to the baby, picking up the hemorrhages, picking up damage to intern transfusion. Most of the time, it's at a stage where the information is just helpful to counsel the patient so that we can plan for the delivery and which centre the baby would deliver in, rather than any decision on what we do with the pregnancy. But it certainly has a role, and it's a role that the neurosurgeons have picked up on and are asking us to do fetal MR if they've been involved with a patient that had some sort of trauma. One of the major difficulties in bringing a, a fetal MR into clinical practice has been the problem of fetal motion. And I was just wondering if you would comment on how the scans are adapted to compensate for fetal motion currently, and, and how do you envisage things to change, particularly in terms of imaging younger fetuses or where there's polyhydramnia? It is very dependent on movement of the fetus. The scans that we routinely use obtain 20 slices in 20 seconds and effectively freeze fetal motion, but some of those slices would be degraded by fetal movement. The experience of your radiographers and your experience of the radiologists in the speed at which you contain your images is very important. So our radiographers are now very experienced. The quicker that they can realign for the next slice for the images you want, the less chance there is that the baby has moved. So the quicker you can move on with your imaging, the better chance you have of quality images. The other thing we've realized is that each sequence has a specific noise 
resonates when you do it. So if you continually repeat the same sequence, the baby will settle. Whereas if you start to change your sequences to get additional information, you'll find the baby starts to move again. So it's important to get the most important images, which are T2-weighted sequences, to continue using that sequence repetitively until you get the baby to settle, and then you can try moving on. Most babies give in. Most babies settle. But it is something that is dependent on your radiographic staff. When we first started, it was taking 30 to 40 minutes to do a scan. Now it's taking 15 minutes, and it's that speed at which the radiographers can align the imaging plane and move on that allows us to get better quality images as well as chase the baby round. And how there about are, the development of um, offline post-processing? Do you think that that's going to be something that will become important in assessing of the fetus, so correcting for motion after the scanning is done to get more detailed splices, or do you think that the current fast imaging is probably adequate for clinical scanning? At the moment, the current fast imaging is better than any post-processing we can do. The problem with all the manufacturers' um, movement artifact reduction techniques, it relies on the baby being in a set position. So it relies on an adult or child position in the scanner, and the fetus has moved so much that you've lost all the motion correction techniques you can use. There are groups in, certainly London, are working hard on this, and they're trying to take a volume image and then use it and re-slice it in different directions. The problem is that we're dealing with such a small centre of interest inside the scanner field that actually when you do that, you end up with a very pixelated image and you lose the definition you need. We are getting better and the techniques will improve, but at the moment they're not useful in clinical practice. And how about other types of MR sequence, so particularly diffusion and T1-based imaging? Do you see that as and spectroscopy, do you see that as having a role in the near future in clinical evaluations of fetus by MRI? The T1 takes longer to do. It takes about a minute at the moment, and even the fast T1s are 30 seconds. However, they are very, very good for hemorrhage. So if you've got an area of hemorrhage, you'll see it on the T1, even though you don't get much detail on anything else. We routinely do T2, T1, something we call a fiesta, which allows us to see edges. The edge enhances around the bones, around the cortical rim. So that's very useful. Um, we also do diffusion-weighted images, as you would do in an adult with a stroke, to assess fetal brain development. Diffusion-weighting imaging depends on gestational age, but once you get to know what your normal range is, it's very useful where there's been brain damage or developmental abnormalities as you get abnormal diffusion signal. We have done some spectroscopy. At the moment, we're only doing it in third trimester, but we are able to pick up a normal spectra from a developing fetal brain, but we can also pick up lactate and lactate in the amniotic fluid, so we're now starting to pick up distressed fetuses. So I think the additional sequences will continue to develop. Certainly, the spectroscopy will continue to develop. Perfusion is another story, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Obviously, if the baby is late third trimester and engaged, we've got a much better chance, but it is a very difficult technique to use, and it's something that is still very much research only, but has the potential. So I think we will move on in all image sequences. The front end of fetal imaging really generally, or the obstetrician or maternal fetal medicine specialist referring to a specialist fetal radiologist, but how would you envisage, or at least at your centre, how is that loop closed? What's the involvement of uh, developmental pediatricians or pediatric neurologists in counselling families and on the basis of MR findings. Is that something that happens routinely for you or is it on a sort of case-by-case -case basis? 
it still tends to be on a case-by-case basis, but what we do do is meet up every month with a full formal fetal MDT meeting. So we have our pediatric surgeons, our neonatologists, pediatric pathologists, radiologists, obstetricians, midwives, geneticists, and we discuss all the patients that have gone through with an abnormality, even if they haven't come for fetal MR. So we go through the obstetrics, where else they've gone, um, including the MR cases, so that all the clinicians are aware of which patients are currently ongoing and they can then start requesting. So often I'll get a geneticist saying, well, I think that patient might benefit from MR. What do you think? And we all have a clinical discussion. And we have our midwives who do the counselling in there as well. So it's a, it's a very good MDT, and it, it's driven by each different clinician asking, can they see that patient, or we need to see that patient, we need to refer them to a specific specialty. So it works really well in Sheffield, and that MDT is the linchpin of it all. If I get a very sick baby that I scan, I will often ring the obstetrician immediately. They can often see them that day, and we put them through the system a lot quicker than waiting for the monthly MDT. So it's sort of case by case, but then a monthly MDT that really reinforces that everybody who needs to know about this baby is there. And then we can do the very technical things like babies who are born with exit procedures. We all know about it in advance, and we can sort a team out to be there for the delivery. So it works very well babies, for example, being born by exit, what do you think the role of additional fecal CNS imaging is in terms of either making the decision for those types of deliveries or surgical planning or non-CNS lesions? Do you think there is any role in assessment of the fecal brain before that decision is made? I mean, I'm thinking specifically about twin-twin transfusion, for example, uh, whether amnion reductions or laser ablations or actually timing of delivery. Do you feel that there's a role for fetal brain MRI in helping uh, obstetricians and surgeons making decisions about treatment planning? We're certainly not doing much in treatment planning in twin-twin transfusion. We're just imaging them to see if there's been an effect of the laser ablation or the amnion reduction. All the decisions are made clinically, and we just help them out if requested. But I'm not usually requested prior to the treatment being instigated, it's usually after the treatment's been done, will I check the brain's not been affected. So things like babies where we're going to end up with complex delivery, like the exit procedure, it's been really helpful to have the anatomy first, get everybody involved who would be there. And often I will get asked to, well, can you have a look at the lungs? Because there's no point in delivering this baby complicatedly if we can't get it to breathe afterwards or can you check this part of the brain because I was specifically interested in that. So it actually directs me as to what I would do the fetal MR on and I find that really useful to have all the clinicians' opinions of what they want from the fetal MR rather than just be sent a patient with a set condition and can you find out some more to have everybody's opinion first. So that works really well. As for whether it will take over helping out in obstetric management, I'm not sure. I wondered, Omar, if you wanted to comment if there's any major differences from your practice. It doesn't really sound like it. I think that perhaps we are under more, somewhat more time pressure just in terms of the time window that we have to image and counsel families just because of the limits of termination. I, I mean, otherwise, I don't think there are any dramatic differences in practice. I suppose the biggest difference in practice here is that we have a significant proportion of patients who self-refer for MRI as well. So there is a sort of an absence of gatekeeping, if you like. There's, a, there's a, probably about a third of patients will come and ask for fetal MRI uh, of their own back, almost in the same way that uh, people will go and request ultrasounds beyond their 
routine anomaly scans. So I suspect that's one difference in practice that we face. I, I think that one of the other things that we've really tried to impose is that we have a one-stop visit. So families come for their fetal MRI and they get counselling with a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, a geneticist or a neonatologist, depending on, on the type of abnormality or lesion. I think, it, as Elspeth was saying, for us, I think that the, the most difficult group are these patients with apparently benign or potentially benign CNS findings that, that you then have to wait to really see how things evolve. And it's a pity that this 24-week cutoff really occurs right in the peak of migration and organization, which, at least in our experience with colossal abnormalities, have the biggest impact on outcome and prognosis. I think that moving towards earlier and higher quality imaging and being able to use surrogate markers such as the degree of sulcation as a marker for how normal, if you like, cortical development is occurring, that's becoming increasingly important for us. Thank you. Did he come back on that, Elspeth? No, I can see that they have the bigger problem than we do in the termination times. Their self-referral would be a disaster in the UK, I'm sure, because we'd end up with the floodgates there. We do get patients turning up to the obstetricians now asking for a fetal MR because they've looked up the condition on the internet. So we are getting some patient-driven requests, and they are also going through self-help groups who are also now suggesting that there should be some fetal MR guidelines, and I think that's how we're responding in the UK. Different groups will put out guidelines for fetal MR and then suggest to the patient that unless you fall into those guidelines, you're not going to get a fetal MR. So we'll be more gatekeeping than the Americans can be. Right. And I suppose the last thing I want to bring up with Elspeth is that from our standpoint, and this is one of the things that we work on in, in most detail, is really trying to close the loop with between what are we able to see by fetal MR and what do the lesions look like. But really, what do they translate into, into long-term neurological and developmental outcomes? My sense is that's still a big lacune, and that's something that there needs to be a generalized effort amongst people who are seeing women and doing fetal MR, how to, how to relate those images which are acquired during pregnancy with the long-term neurological and developmental outcomes of the children. I think that is a big problem, trying to find funding to do studies, because I think the children have to be assessed at school age, so you've got to wait until they're at least five before you can assess these children to see what the more subtle abnormalities are having on outcome. We do try and follow ours up as much as possible locally, and I, certainly any terminations we will follow up and get all the information on. The geneticists will feed their information back, but that's a small cohort of patients, and they're the ones that actually you're not that interested in what you need to find out is the ongoing effect in the babies that are born that are going to school that are going on even into adolescence what effects that the abnormalities that we saw had and it's exceedingly difficult to do that we are trying with ventricular megaly but again getting funding to do these babies at five is exceedingly difficult but i agree with omar that's the most important part of this the follow-up part particularly as we get better at fetal MR, is more important than natural interpretation of the original images. Thank you. We've now come to the end of our podcast time. Thank you very much. I found this really, really interesting to listen to. It's fascinating what you can do, but also what you're looking ahead to being able to do. I found it most educational. I'm sure our readers will as well. And just to remind any listeners that the article is called Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Fetus by Chucky and Whitby and will be coming out in the January issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. Thank you both again very much. Thank you. Thank you.